Welcome to the Revolutionaries of Wellbeing podcast. I'm founder and host, Sarah McGuinness. The Revolutionaries of Wellbeing, or RO, is a community of wellbeing managers from organizations around the globe. At RO, we develop you as a wellbeing leader, giving you a powerful support network, professional development, and workplace wellbeing solutions so that you can focus on giving your employees the right support at the right time. To be stronger, better, and faster at improving wellbeing in your workplace, professional development is key. These discussions on workplace wellbeing are designed to inspire, share ideas, and raise awareness of important issues we can all take action on. The interviews are recorded as part of our monthly Wellbeing Wednesday webinars. In this session, we're joined by guest Jolie Wills, a Christchurch-based cognitive psychologist specializing in disaster recovery. Jolie has been collating lessons learned from disasters around the world as part of her work at Hummingly. Hummingly supports recovery capacity building and leadership in action. Jolie was awarded a Winston Churchill Fellowship to study how best to support the workforce during times of recovery. During the recovery phase of COVID-19, resilient leaders will need to inspire their teams to navigate through uncertainty. From a well-being perspective, it is important leaders both support their team and their own well-being to sustain that energy and focus. Drawing on her expertise in assisting leaders through prolonged pressure, Jolie shares her tips and recommendations for ensuring leaders are able to get through those challenges. We also discuss strategies and initiatives that workplaces can put in place to create critical support structures. Finally, we also reflect on how to manage stress through times of crisis. Hummingly builds easy-to-use wellbeing and resilience tools to help people do stress and uncertainty well. Jolie is a cognitive scientist with a Master's of Science in Cognitive Psychology and her areas of expertise are recovery from disaster and mass disruption and workforce resilience and well-being. So an incredible set of skills for us to draw on, Jolie. So really keen to start with your background and what drew you to working in well-being? Yeah, so that's it's an interesting question. So my business partner, Elizabeth, so Elizabeth McNaughton, she sort of chose disasters. It's always been her career. So she always says that her career has been a series of disasters, quite literally, you know, right from the Boxing Day tsunami. Whereas for me, like a lot of people who end up working in this space, disaster came knocking on my door, you know. So um, having gone through the Canterbury earthquake, And the well-being aspect really came about in that we were leading a team. We had about 20 staff in Christchurch. This was New Zealand Red Cross at the time. You know, really large appeal and a large program of work that we knew was going to go on for at least five years. Yeah. So having been part of an organisation where we understand, or there's a lot of people that, a network of people that do disasters, you know, we knew that it was going to go on for longer than what people anticipated. And this is true of any mass disruption, right? And so for me, um, working with a team, we had 20 staff and 100 volunteers, and we knew if they were going to be doing their job well of supporting people in the community, often while dealing with their own stuff, and they were going to do that through prolonged stress over time, that we were really going to have to look after their well-being and their resilience. We knew it was going to be a key success factor. And so just thinking back to that time, you know, what I did was try to put in place everything you possibly could, you know, like all your typical well-being and resilience stuff, stuff that wasn't even a thing back then, but, you know, we were doing everything from briefing and debriefing and EAP and um, professional supervision and mentoring and yoga at lunchtime and shared lunches and you name it, we threw everything we could think of at it, knowing that this was going to be really important to be proactive about people's well-being. But the challenge we had is that um, over time, you know, that prolonged stress, 
despite all of this proactive effort looking after people's well-being and resilience, we were still burning people out, yeah? And to us, that just wasn't okay. And when we started looking around all the other tables we sat around, whether it was with government or other private enterprise or um, community or social organisations, we were seeing the same thing, the exhaustion and the burnout. Um, but if anything, we were probably you know, doing a little bit better, but on the same track because we've been proactive about it. We're still heading in the same direction. And that, at the time, led me to think, well, this isn't the first disaster or mass disruption the world's ever had. You know, other people must have had this problem. And, you know, like, what do we do to tackle this? And so I went looking for the research. This is sort of 2013 and 14, and there wasn't a lot around. Um, and so it led to a Winston Churchill Fellowship, which is a fellowship that funded or part-funded some travel around the world, looking at a whole lot of different disasters essentially prolonged stress situations, talking to people who'd been there at different stages of the journey. Some people had been through it 10 years ago, some people 20 years ago, some had just started the journey, but really getting an understanding of why is this so difficult? What are the impacts of working under prolonged stress and what are the things that we should be doing organisationally and individually to better support people through it? Yeah? So that is kind of why I became so interested in this space, the, the confluence of mass disruption and prolonged stress and how do we better look after people and ourselves working through it. Mm. And with your fellowship you travelled around overseas, what were some of the destinations or disasters that you were looking at? So I looked at everything from um, the very first stop was the Black Saturday bushfires. Yeah. So we looked there in King Lake, Victoria. Um, and from there travelled to, gosh, casting my mind back, the next place I think was Kobe, you know, which was quite a bit further ahead in terms of they'd been, it'd been longer since their event, so the Kobe earthquakes, and then up where they had the large tsunami a month after the Christchurch earthquake in Japan, and then from there to visit people involved in 9-11, um, Hurricane Sandy, yeah, through to the L'Aquila earthquake in Italy, um, yeah, through various um, Haiti, yeah, lots of different. Tried to tackle as many, sort of talk to as many people who had worked in the space that was as similar to our environment as possible. Um, was very conscious of the cultural differences, but actually I found more similarities and differences. Really interesting. Mm. Yeah. And perhaps we could touch on those. What In the early days, what were some of the key themes that absolutely stood out? That stood out were... The fact that, and I, maybe I'll just tell a little story, you know, like I was, I was worried about the, the cultural translation, you know, like how is this going to work, especially in Japan, you know, like knowing that, um, you know, a role, your role in an organisation and how you represent and talk about your organisation, your role as an individual versus collective is very different and your ability to be able to, to speak your mind is very different, you know, so I wondered um, culturally how that played out. So I'd start just by saying, this is what we're experiencing here in Christchurch. What has it been like for you? Is this something similar? Or has it been completely different? And, you know, just opened it that way. And was really surprised at how open people were about um, what they were experiencing, the organisational challenges, as well as the, you know, disaster-related challenges. And there was one lady that I talked to who was, um, she was in her 60s. She had been working to support people um, entering temporary accommodation or finding them temporary accommodation after the tsunami. It wasn't a space that she'd worked in. You know, like it's a bit like after COVID, you suddenly find yourself in new territory. You know, it was all very uncertain. And she said, you know, as I was interviewing her and asking her these questions, she jumped up, you know, and I had a translator, so I was trying to get my head around what was happening. And she's chanting around the room. 
sort of saying to the trainers, like, what have I done? You know, like, what have, what have I done here? Like, what have, have I asked something wrong? Have I like, and she said, no, no, she's chanting, I'm human, I'm human. You know, and she said, and then she sat down eventually and calmed down. She said, actually, the first year I had all this passion and this energy and I just wanted to do the most amazing things by these people. And she said, in the second year, I had the passion, but a whole lot less energy and wanted to do amazing. By the third year, I'd lost my passion and my energy and thought, what is wrong with me? And she'd never shared that with anyone else. And just hearing that that is a very normal place for people to be was really uplifting. And so she invited me to dinner and invited all her teammates and had the conversation they'd never had around, tell, tell them what you told me, you know? So, um, yeah. And then one other story that sort of jumps out that I, that I talk a lot about is the impact of that cumulative stress, the cumulative nature and the prolonged nature of stress. And the best way I heard it articulated was by a lady called Anne Leadbeater, who worked in local government in King Lake in Victoria. And she said, you know, when people sort of think it's all about, um, you know, just the event itself, she said, but it's the prolonged nature of what you're having to deal with. And she said, it's like carrying this set of bricks. She said, you've got bricks that are just part of your life anyway. Like everyone's carrying bricks that are either your responsibilities, maybe it's health stuff, worries about others, you know, your, your job is seasonal, whatever. You've got these bricks, things that you're just having to anticipate and carry and work your way around. And she said, and then a big event happens, you know, something like COVID or bushfires in her case. And suddenly, you know, your routines shift, the way that you normally do things shift, your job becomes more complicated. And so suddenly you end up with all these new bricks, right? And she said, but the challenge is the bricks just keep coming. And because you're all collectively overloaded, your normal support structure, you're like, I'm going to give Catherine over there a couple of my bricks, but actually Catherine's got a whole lot herself. And then Jim over there is having a tough time and, and look how capable you are carrying all this stuff. You can have Jim's bricks too, you know? And she said, and this just goes on and you just think it's going to go on for a certain long length of time and it goes on much longer and you're getting really tired, but there's no one to give these bricks to. And then your boss will say to you, hey, Anne, so important, the self-care stuff, really, really important. You look after yourself. This is, you know, so important. But can you do three more things for me by the end of the week and give you three more breaks? You know, and it's that, that acknowledgement that actually there's a, something about the situation that is difficult and it's not all about, um, doesn't matter how capable or clever or intelligent or amazing someone is, there's, there's a cumulative load that um, is weary to anybody. Yeah, and it's very normal for people to feel quite tired um, over time. I love that idea of the bricks. I'm almost thinking that's an activity anyone could do, couldn't they? To kind of write down, what are all the bricks that I'm carrying right now that are on my shoulders? And so I imagine when you got back from that and you were back in Christchurch looking around the environment, what did you see was missing then in terms mm -hmm. of the support? So there were sort of five things that I remember thinking, we need to solve this challenge, right? There are five things that are missing between us, putting everything we can think of in place and are actually working and doing what we need to do. Yeah. And the first thing for me was it needed to be preventative. And we were doing a whole lot of preventative stuff, but it needed to be preventative that worked. You know, that was the bit that seemed to be missing. And the second thing, it needed to help bridge the gap between knowing what we need to do and doing it, right? So you can do the educational piece, but it's a bit like knowing you've got to eat your five fruit and veggies. When the pressure comes on, you don't necessarily do it. So how do we find a way to help for people or with people to bridge that gap between what they know they need to do and actually doing it? And then the third one is we know from all the research that actually the best source of support is people's friends, family, close colleagues. So it's those loved ones around you but under prolonged stress, we tend to retract away from that. So we wanted something that would actually help mobilise those support networks. 
And then fourthly, like this is not an easy challenge, you can see. Fourthly, we're like, well, how do we help people really feel comfortable in starting the wellbeing conversation and having it in an ongoing way, like managers and staff? And it's not the domain of the wellbeing lead in the organisation or the HR manager, or in my case, the psychosocial in-house expert. You know, like how do we make this something that people feel confident and able to do? And then lastly, how do we do this preventative stuff in a way that we can ingrain it in our organisation and then maintain it through time? It's not a flash in the pan. So for us, those were, you know, when I came back from the trip, it was like, how do we take some of what we learned from all that research that we'd just done? How do we take, you know, between us more than two decades of working under prolonged stress situations? And how do we take kind of the cognitive science and the wellbeing science and address those challenges? Like, how do we do something that's evidence-informed, super practical and works really easy and works under pressure. So that for us was our, <laughs> that was our task. And that's essentially, you know, part of why we started Hummingly was like, how do we take some of the learning from all of this and create things that are super practical and easy for people to use? Um, and yeah, so I'm not going to make this a sales pitch, but that's <laughs> the, that, that is the tool that we created in the end that we really wished we'd had ourselves and then realised actually this is really helpful for others as well. So that's part, part of the journey as to how we got there, but it wasn't an easy, easy kind of task. And when we create it, it, it for us, it's like actually this is, yeah, this is a challenge that we didn't foresee COVID, but, you know, it's a challenge that when you come to any, anything that's uncertain. We talk about the things that really um, psychologically we find difficult, anything that's new, uncertain, our threat to our status quo or our sense of control. We call that nuts, you know, so new, uncertain, threat to our you know, um, sense of yeah, status quo and our sense of control. And, you know, like I think these are the tools that we need for those kind of environments. And when you get something like COVID, you're hitting all four of them, which is why we find it so difficult. Yeah. So if I can just come back to you, because there's, there's a couple of things from there that are really interesting. And the first would be, you know, when you returned to Christchurch and you had all that knowledge, as you said, there were a number of areas you could see were missing. Where do you start? What was kind of the, the first steps to really making a difference? For us, it was really nutting it out. It was a bit of a design challenge. So we started, Elizabeth and I started putting, she did a Winston Churchill on leadership in these kind of environments. So between us, we spoke to more than 100 people who had worked in this sort of prolonged stress and, you know, took a lot of the, the wisdom. They were so generous with it in terms of if I could go back, this is what I would do differently or this is the one thing that really worked for me or this was the impact of, of this kind of work. Um, and we first created a guide, and I can send you through the link to this, but it's a leadership guide. And again, it was a design challenge around, you know, um, at the time it was like, what, what are people able to cognitively absorb in this kind of operating, operating space? And it, so it's very small, but it's full of quotes and stories and key questions to ask yourself. So it's a bit of a guide, a bit of a compass for that sort of leadership and disruption. And that was our first kind of design challenge. And then we looked at those five challenges I talked about. So, for example, how do we help connect people with that support system that they pull away from but actually really need? You know, so, um, and that was, again, just looking at what does it mean and how would it work and what would it need to be given the sort of cognitive space that we're in when we're under prolonged pressure. And so there's a set of cards that, you know, it's just basically tackling those and thinking about it, knowing it and having lived it and been our own social experiments too. <laughs> you know, we really, we really knew, would, we, would that work in this kind of, it's got to work under prolonged pressure and stress. And, yeah, it was just tackling that design challenge. Mm. And are there things, I'm actually just thinking about that, you know, that prolonged stress, 
there's prolonged stress in, in terms of disasters and then there's everyday stresses. Is the response the same but heightened or are there particular things that we do in response to, to crises in terms of our well-being? I think it's, it's sort of understanding the stress biology behind it. And for me, what I find helpful is thinking about there's a, a curve that looks at stress so, you know, cognitive psychologists, we, we can have a little bit of fun in the lab. And I just sort of think, actually, you'll look around and see that you don't need a lab to do this. We are our own kind of social experiments with this. But what we can do is we can artificially change people's cortisol levels, and then, which is one of your stress hormones, and then check and see, well, what does that do to our ability to be able to remember things, solve problems, make you know, good decisions? And there's a curve that is really helpful that I find helpful anyway to go back to. And it sort of says first that actually if we have really low cortisol, I'll try and, try and draw it out, but if we have really low cortisol levels, um, actually what we know then is that we perform really poorly on those tasks, which is counterintuitive for a lot of people, right? We've been often um, socialised that stress is bad, but actually we need some stress. And we think it's because you need to care enough about something. There's so much in the world that drawing our attention. You've got to care enough about something, have enough skin in the game to really um, put your energy and your attention and your focus into something. So we need a little bit of cortisol, a little bit of stress. So you increase the stress a little. And we hit this beautiful sweet spot of high performance. And that's where you're, it's often an uncomfortable space. You know, it's a space where all your comfort zones are being pushed on. So it's not necessarily an easy space to be, but it's where our body has really mobilized um, all our resources to be able to um, basically to, to deal with whatever issue that we've got. And that's where you hit things out of the park individually or collectively. You think, wow, how do we do that? You know, it's that beautiful green sweet spot of stress. And then what happens, especially in, so if you have acute stress, so if you have too much stress all at once, or we have stress that accumulates, so you hit a critical level, either cumulatively or in an acute way. So basically what happens, increase the cortisol a little bit more and our performance drops, right? It just nosedives. And, you know, there's a whole lot of biological reasons for that around the parts of our brain that we can access. You know, we're unable to access those beautiful parts of our brain that really help us with nuanced thinking and creative problem solving and you know all of that stuff becomes inaccessible at that point and it means that it doesn't matter how much effort we put in the effort and performance isn't is no longer connected yeah so it's one of those you can just keep trying how do you think at this point why why am I just putting so much effort in and it's just not going anywhere it's because we're really in that that stress performance kind of bucket at the bottom where it's gotten too much or it's gone on for too long yeah and is that something you see happening with COVID now? You know, we, we've been in here, I mean, in this period of, of um, more uncertainty really since March, you know, we're now heading September. You know, there's a possibility this is going to go on for some time. What are some of the things that you're noticing now? Mm. And those are the sorts of things you can expect. Like when pressure goes on for a long time, you know, I sort of think about having to change all your routines having to change, um, you know, the way that you do your role takes energy, you know, having to think about the way that you, you know, um, everything from going, how you go to the supermarket, that all takes energy. Having to hold empathy and tolerance for others takes energy. Having to be positive and optimistic and all of those things takes energy. And, you know, so that energy is 
often comes from, you know, our, our reserves and over time we run low on all of that. So it's really understandable that at this point we can expect to see tiredness happening. The other thing we tend to see, um, and there's a bit of a, we call it a recovery curve, but you could call it a disruption curve, whatever you'd like. But what we tend to see is early on there's a sense of unity and um, shared, shared common experience, right? We're all in this together, team of five million. It's tough. But, you know, there's the sense of um, often optimism and we think we can get through this and often have, um, because we, or we often don't have the previous experience, we have quite optimistic opt- uh, expectations about how long things will take. And then what happens over time is as, as we do get tired, trying to hold that optimism, trying to change all our routines, that cumulative load starts to bite. What we tend to see is over time, people do become really tired. We get fracturing. So between, between team members, it's hard to hold that tolerance. It's hard. Um, we start to see division. We start to see division within teams, between teams, those that can work from home versus those that go to the office, those that are home with kids versus those that aren't. Like you start, we see it in many different ways after disaster. Like we saw it in Christchurch with those that were red zoned, those that um, everyone and collectively were in it together. And then over time, there were those that were insured versus those that weren't. There were those that wanted to stay versus those that wanted to move out, you know. And so um, after 9-11, it was those that were injured um, but survived, those that lost their loved ones, those that weren't even in the building but um, thought their loved one, you know, they'd lost them. And those groups initially all had a common shared experience and they all had, you know, a right and a need for support and for the pain that they were experiencing. But over time, they be- began to lose the ability to empathise with each other. And so you can expect to see things to get a little bit socially and emotionally tatty for people. That's really normal. And I think the problem is we often see this sort of you come down into the slump. And if you don't know what's ahead and what's potentially on the horizon, it feels like this downward trajectory, Right. And at that point, it feels like, you know, there's a lot of self-flagellation going on because, you know, I'm not feeling like the lady who said, I just thought, why haven't I got this energy? Why aren't I coping with this better, you know? And also there's worry and concern for others because you're just seeing this downward trajectory. And it's a scary place to be. You know, you worry about this. You worry about how much this is normal, how much you can admit to others, you know, so there's this quite vulnerable space. But what we do find is that, you know, it does go on for longer than what we typically expect. It's never this neat and tidy. There's always backsliding like COVID re-emerging or aftershocks. Like it's always really messy. Um, And it always does take longer than what people think and is more fraught than what people expect. But over time, you end up in a space um, where more than 50% of people we know from the research tend to grow from these kind of really difficult events. And, you know, that's not to undermine or to downplay the pain or, you know, the hardship that often goes into getting there. Um, and some of the research is up to 89%. So we're talking, you know, actually growth is, a, is an expectation, but it's a hard thing to anticipate or talk about when you're having a really tough time. But it's reassuring to know at that point that doesn't mean you're off track if you're having a bad time, if things are really hard. It doesn't mean good things aren't ahead for you. And it can take some of that nervous energy around, okay, this is normal. I can take some of that energy and, and deploy it into if I can expect this for me or for my teams, how do we mitigate that? 
what are the what does success look like when we're all a bit tired and ratty with each other you know like what are the strategies we can put in place and how do we hold that pain for people and also the possibility which is a challenging one as well Mm. And and one of the things that I'm struck by with COVID compared to say other disasters, you know, we've talked about this a little with Christchurch is when Christchurch occurred, people could still leave and go to a sense of normal if you went up the road to another township. You know, there was a place to go that felt the same as what we were used to. With COVID, the entire world is in this and we can't necessarily escape. Uh, Are there some differences in this and how people are coping and looking to the future? I think there's pros and cons to that. You know, I think in Christchurch, there was a lot of, um, you can get a breakaway if you have the resources, right? I mean, that's not something everybody could do, but you could get a breakaway, but you always came back and the break was never really long enough to to regenerate all your you know lost energy. But I think over time too, it's really normal for the rest of the world to go on with things and not understand that you're carrying under a set of bricks at two years in you know so I think there was also a lack of understanding which is really normal we see after every event so as much as people became support for each other and within a location they were also very tired they um there was a sense of people outside not understanding and we see that in every kind of event here we have the benefit of everybody kind of at least you know you've got a head office that also has some understanding not making decisions from somewhere else without necessarily understanding what's happening. Like we all have a shared common understanding, which I think is helpful because it gives shared empathy. But the downside of that is that you often don't have resources to draw on from outside because everybody's caring. You know, you don't have people who have maybe been through it before but aren't in that space and are in a great space themselves without having to carry bricks. You know, like I think there's the downside of that is that we're all dealing with it which has some some good and some some bad points to it you know in terms of being able to to ring up someone and say hey you know I know you've got it all together in your life right now because you haven't got COVID or you know can you help me with this bit actually we're all in it together which is is both good and challenging. So for leaders supporting staff through this, they'll obviously, that's a good good way to, to talk about this then, they will be carrying their own bricks but they'll also want to support those you know in their team and how they manage their their bricks and what's happening for them what are some of the things leaders can be doing to support people at, you know through this and, and also hold on to their own well-being yeah so I mean one of the things that we found most useful and I think that brick analogy really helped us understand this was um the self-care aspect is really really important but there's also the understanding the load that people are under because you know if if we look at self-care but keep loading people up it's just doesn't work so for us it was understanding that um we talk about triple responsibility right so individuals have a huge amount of power to be able to manage some of their own bricks you know to be able to set their expectations to be able to put strategies in place and supports in place to be able to look after themselves Um, teams have massive power and influence especially as things get a bit ratty and tatty you know that teams can be um huge source of support for people or can really undermine people's well-being So, you know, like I think we can put some responsibility on teams too to say which is it going to be and what is that going to look like. And then organisationally, we have a huge, um, and as leaders, huge impact on people's wellbeing and how we design roles and a whole lot of, of areas. So, you know, people often, we get the finger pointing, you know, from people who are saying, yeah, but they just keep loading me up. So, you know, it's almost like it's the organisation's fault. And then you get the organisation saying, but they just need to take responsibility for themselves. And it's just both. Like, and it's all three, you know. So if we think about what we can practically do, it's useful to think in those three circles. 
you know, in terms of that triple responsibility. So if we think about from the organisational level, and I don't know why the number five is coming up today, but I was thinking about this this morning as well. The first thing I would say is that you actually have a huge amount of power to tip the scale towards growth. And we can talk about uh, what was really sobering was the very real impacts that people were reporting on that research trip that I did. Very real impacts for them and for the organisation. Really sobering. If it was any other hazard, man, we would be jumping right on it, you know. But we have a huge um, power to influence towards growth and away from damage as much as possible. So an organisational level, the five things that I would say would be the first is to in- eliminate any unnecessary bricks, right? So um, address any organisational stressors, really understand what people are finding difficult, what processes aren't working for them, you know, is it managerial styles, like what is it that that the organisation is inadvertently adding as part of their role or the way that things are working and address that. There are things that we can't control and influence. There'll be bricks that people will need to find a way to carry, right? But there will be bricks organisationally that we can lighten people's load somehow. So understanding what are the organisational bricks that we can shift. What are the things that we can shift and change to make people's life just that little bit easier? Yeah, that'd be the first thing. To get to the source of the stress, right? Because just like any other hazard, it's, it's you know, we, we've got to really think about... Um, rather, you know, proactively and preventatively looking at the source of stress rather than um, just treating harm once we've loaded people up too much. So that's the first thing. The second thing I would say is set wellbeing as a priority, you know, right from the top. And that sounds really obvious, but, you know, it's, it's really important. The third thing would be to really prepare people to do stress well, make sure that they've got the tools and the strategies to be able to do the stuff well, you know, that beautiful green spot, but to be able to self-manage, to do stress well, especially under pressure. Have they got the tools and everything that they need? Yeah. The fourth thing is that we talked about before, holding both pain and possibility for people. You know, it's, it, that's a really challenging line to, to kind of hold and to, to walk. But it's that idea of um, really acknowledging the hardship that people are experiencing um, and holding, holding the hope at the same time and seeking those opportunities for growth. That's a tricky one, but that's something to be thinking of. Um, and then lastly, you know, you lead others to where you, you yourself are. And that's something we learned a lot, especially from Elizabeth Winston Churchill on leadership, right? Often people will hit burnout as a leader and where it was really common and then realise their team was just a couple of weeks behind them, right? So if we lead others to where you yourself are, then really thinking about, how do you set up your own support crew? How do you get really intentional about having your own plan in place for your own well-being? Because, um, yeah, it's definitely understanding. Organisationally, you know, role modelling as leaders and as HR professionals is really important. So that's the organisational piece. And then if we get really practical around the team, there were two things that, that we did. And, again, this is different for, for everybody, but just in terms of our um, suggestions and ideas, and you'll come up with your own. And it's nice for the teams to come up with their own, right? But for us, it was like we're going to define what success looks like when we hit this trough, when everybody's tired and ratty and it's really hard to hold tolerance and patience and to be kind to each other. What is success going to look like at that point, you know? And so we talked about, um, well, if we know that everybody's going to be in that space, so our customers, for example, or the people we're working with are likely to be a little bit more um, ratty as well, then if people are biting at us at that stage, we're not going to be eating each other. You know, let's just, it's not setting the bar very high, but we're just not going to be biting at each other when we're at that space, in that space where we know it's really tough. 
Um, and then the second one, we decided we were going to be really explicit in the behaviours that, you know, in our team that we would have um, and hold. And one is setting kindness as a default. So there's that idea that if someone is, you know, like a bit reactive, then it's probably because of the bricks that they're carrying, you know, like let's be generous in our assumptions um, and try not to take it personally, you know. So rather than attributing to, to them as a horrible person, you know, or getting, yeah, like battling back, it's that um, trying to set kindness as a default. Um, so there were a the couple of things that we did at the team level. So that's the organisation and the team. And when you come down to the individual, they were like, you know, the, the realisation that energy and actions are contagious, right? So if that is the case, then, you know, our individual responsibility is really to think about how do we counteract that exhaustion, you know, and that division that often comes about. How do we do that? You know, like how can we stack the deck with acts of compassion, reaching out across divides? How can we just get more intentional about showing people that we care, because that's the stuff that falls off under prolonged stress really easily. So how do we make that more of a thing individually? You know, and everybody has an individual responsibility. If we all did that in an organisation, that really changes. You know, the, the energy we bring is contagious. So what energy are we turning up with? What are the acts that are the flavour of our day? And how do we change that for people around us? And then lastly, making sure that, you know, individuals have the tools to really manage their own resilience yeah, at that individual level. Yeah, that's a lot. I'm sorry. But <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fantastic. It's really great. And what I love is that, as you say, there's those, those three really clear layers and they work, you know, in and out, I imagine. You know, yeah. as people feel like they're, they're more resilient, they have more to cope, they can bring that compassion, that kindness, they can then support others. Um, I'm, I'm struck by that, that idea of holding hope. Mm-hmm. And especially right now when we don't know what we're hoping for, perhaps, because mm-hmm. with COVID we don't know when this will end, we don't know in what way it will end, or even what this means for our country in terms of the borders. There's so much uncertainty. What yep. does it look like to role model holding hope? Mm, that is a good question. It's a good question. I think it's that, again, painting the picture, and it's a picture of, it's a realistic picture, right? Helping people to understand that it's realistic for this, this and this to happen and to be feeling right now. And it's really normal. And so I guess giving people permission to be having a tough time and to free some of their energy up to be able to put it into constructive places, the energy about worrying about, am I normal? You know, can I share this with someone else? Am I going to be judged for it professionally? You know, am I going to be punished for it by having things taken off me that I really care about? Um, You know, so one really normalizing all of that stuff. And then holding the hope around, um, we will get through this. You know, again, that end goal, and we we may even come off better, better, you know, we may come out of this better off. But boy, it doesn't mean it's not hard getting there, you know. So I think it's that kind of being really clear in your messaging around being hopeful, having a united purpose is really helpful in that. Because, uh, you know, it's one of those things that is an anchor through some of that tough stuff. Yeah. So what is that united purpose that will keep us putting one foot in front of the other um staking our hope as much as possible on that and on things being better in the future but not necessarily being easy getting there you know so trying to hold the by the polarity of that you know the the two ends of that at the same time Mm. and that's where i can see communication is just so important Um, and it's obviously one of the things that's carried us through covid generally is is the level of communication a lot of organizations have talked about that they've really had to step it up during this time 
as wellbeing champions, you know, we're, it's probably likely many of us are looking at, at leaders and, and seeing some of them perhaps not coping quite so well. You know, how do we have those discussions? What are some of the things we can do to kind of give them that wraparound support? Yeah. And again, it's that, um, and something we found the most amazing leaders that we interviewed, you know, had their moments, they hit burnout, they learned the hard way, they, you know, no one found this easy. It's not an easy gig, you know, and I think giving that as a message first um, so that people feel that they are able to accept support um, and the best leaders tended to be the ones that were open to support and open to connecting with others and um, connecting with people who'd been through tough stuff before, you know. So I think of the ones that, you know, they, they didn't always feel that they could face, show that face to everyone in their organisation, but they at least had a set, we call it like a, a personal board, you know, so for those leaders, where is the place that they can be vulnerable? Where are the truth seekers, the, the truth speakers and the perspective setters, the people that when they will lose perspective under prolonged stress, yeah, and they will get really tired? Who are the people that can hold them to their values? Who are the people that can hold the hope for them sometimes, you know? Who are the people who can ask the right questions and see things that maybe they can't see for themselves at that point? So, That'd be the first thing is to try and set people up with their own support crew, some sort of personal personal board, you know, that they can put in place um, for them and then to have a plan around their well-being because it's just one of those things um, for them to lead the way with having that plan because it's important to everyone else that they lead the way but actually also because they will lead others to where they're at. And if they don't have a plan, I think this stuff, um, we, are, we are well intended but hope's not a method, you know, like for your well-being and your resilience, especially under pressure, because it's the stuff that will fall off and end up at the bottom of the list. Yeah. yeah. So that would be so the two things is to make sure that they have a plan and that they have a really good support crew around them. Yeah. So it sounds like some messaging and saying that, you know, it's really important that you're a leader, but you don't have to have all the answers. You know, that's kind of what the personal support yeah. board can give you, that, that boosted support. Yeah. And I think, too, that knowing that um, it's, 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 this is uncertain, right? It is um, abnormal. There's all of this stuff happening, but they are conditions that other people in the world have faced before. So there are other people, like I think it just whole having to figure it out all the time is exhausting. And I think there's less to figure out than what people realise. You know, there are people who have dedicated their careers to this stuff. There are other leaders who have had to work out some of the stuff the hard way. They're going to be different kind of contexts, but a lot of the things that they're struggling and facing um, are the same. So again, it's that trying not to figure it all out yourself, you know, is really important. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Well, we'll go to questions in a moment, but if I can, if I can wrap that part up and asking, you know, kind of, you've touched on some of those things people can do, kind of individually, teams, and and as the organisation. But for this wellbeing champions group, are there sort of you know three things they in particular could take away and you know do immediately to support their organisation or their leaders or or even themselves because they're leaders too. Yeah, absolutely. So the first thing is to, is to have your own plan, right? You know, um, and to lead because we often hear people talking about they had leaders in their organisations that were like these powerhouses, you know, that just didn't seem to need sleep and just kept on going and off. You know, I, I challenge that in many ways, but <laughs> but at the same time, it's that that setting the example that everyone else feels like they've got to be the same, you know. Um, so yeah, for you yourself, it's like pushing back wherever you can on expectations that you are superhuman, you know, because 
um, is how do we sustain our leadership through time? There'll be those trying to be superhuman that will fall down. You know, we've seen it again and again. So how do you push back and keep that that stake in the in the ground really around actually we I'm not going to be doing the 3 a.m. emails. You know, I am going to have a certain day or whatever off a week. And so really um, holding tight as much as you can to whatever boundaries that you need to set and role model for others. Yeah, would be probably the, the very first thing. The second thing I think about with your organisations is just be as proactive as you can. You know, you need to have in place, you know, supports and safety nets for those um, that are going to need it. But let's be as proactive as we can to, to head people towards growth and away from damage um, as possible, you know, and there are, there are ways to do that. So, yeah, probably be the two main things. Thanks again for listening today. It's been great to have you along. If you're keen to join the revolutionaries of wellbeing, head to rowwellbeing, that's R-O-W wellbeing.com and follow the links to sign up. If you're in our community, thanks again. And we look forward to catching up with you really soon. 